Hi, I'm M. And I'm E. And welcome to Blood and Turf, a podcast about transphobic ideologies such as trans-exclusionary radical feminism and its intersections with fascism, cults, pseudoscience, and other reactionary political phenomena. In this episode, we've invited a guest on in order to explain the weird and wild landscape of Scottish politics and how it's bound up in a wave of transphobia. Dalm, who's based in Scotland, has kindly agreed to come on the show to help me explain to E why Scottish turfs are so absolutely fucked. While I am actually Scottish, I haven't lived there in several years, and the political environment has changed a lot since I left home. Accordingly, we'll start off with a brief contextual explainer for the listener. Our music for this episode is by Marina Crustacean. Content warnings for this episode are transphobia, as usual, discussion of sexual assault, religious sectarianism, and eyewitness descriptions of transphobic organising. Today we're talking to Dom, a Scottish organiser for the Industrial Workers of the World. Hello, Dom. Hey, I'm Dom. Uh, my pronouns are she, her, and I'm a trans woman living in Scotland. I've uh, unfortunately had first-hand experience being involved with the True Scum Tariff movement in the past. So before we get cracking with the with the main body of the episode, we're going to do another instalment of Cult Watch, um, a staple of the show, which we haven't done in a little while. Uh, we've got a we've got a few updates from our general cult watching. Uh, e, would you like to kick us off? Right, yeah. So uh, everyone's favorite gender critical man, Glinner, has joined a lesbian dating app to harass lesbians for not being lesbian enough, which is is cool. I'm I'm glad he's enjoying his radicalization spiral and that the divorce is, is going well for him. The Glinner dating dating app thing, apparently he's like just like posting photos up of people who he thinks aren't sufficiently feminine. Yeah, harassing lesbians on the lesbian dating app for not being lesbian enough to his normal, standards. Normal behavior. Normal, normal behavior. Who hasn't done this? I've done this. <laughs> M, get off this podcast. You're cancelled, mate. It wouldn't be us without one cancellation per episode. <laughs> uh, what's next? Uh, JK Rowling. Um, oh, yeah. So there was an international uh, LGBT report which has kind of like looked at, looked at the general situation in the UK and they have interpreted it to be sufficiently bad that well, t- they've interpreted things to, to the degree that J.K. Rowling's interference in anti-trans rhetoric has actually had material effects in diminishing like LGBT, LGBT rights across the board, which is um, heroic. Thanks, Joanne. Thanks for the posting. Uh, speaking Thanks. of posting, Gina Carano uh, got done recently for being anti-Semitic. The, the Disney, she's in The Mandalorian, I think. Yeah. Uh, and she lost her job because obviously, uh, but it's, it's interesting specifically because she previously uh, did some turf cultural bullshit. In further American news, uh, Joe Biden is continuing to kind of just like bumble along uselessly as ever, but the tariffs have um, whipped themselves into a frenzy over a completely innocuous civil rights bill. They have decided that because the Biden administration is trying to pass some pieces of legislation which relate to like transhuman rights, he is therefore engaging in some kind of like highly articulated campaign against women's rights and the Biden administration will therefore just be uh, apocalypse now for women across the board. Uh, obviously, Biden is misogynist and he's a rapist, but that's not what's happening here. They're ripping themselves into a fury over a fairly innocuous piece of paperwork. What's quite interesting, though, specifically around that in terms of kind of cult cult level is that a lot of people, you know, not enough, but quite a few turf looked around and went, hang on a second. Why are all these Trump people on the same side as me and angry about Biden? Have we gone a little bit far? Which is yeah. some good news. 
you also got like British tariffs kind of like looking at their American friends who got upset when Biden won the election, which is something I remember. We might even have mentioned that on a previous episode, but that was mm. quite notable. And that concludes Cult Watch. Yeah. Hooray. <laughs> it's like the shipping forecast, but worse. I will not have a word said against the shipping forecast. Oh, the shipping forecast is good. It's just that right now the weather's bad. Oh, very true. Very true. Anyway, um, so we're, I'm, I'm going to do a little kind of like contextual spiel to explain what the hell is going on with Scottish politics for all of our listeners who aren't familiar with uh, Scottish local and national political bickering. Uh, Dom, uh, feel free to like jump in at any point if you feel that I'm kind of like going off track or saying something that's no longer accurate or, or anything like that. Absolutely. Cool. Thanks. So yeah, uh, basically... Um, Scottish politics right now is kind of like defined by the dominance of this party called the Scottish Nationalist Party, uh, which is a, a, a party which is seeking to establish a kind of like neoliberal independent state in Scotland that is no longer part of the United Kingdom. Um, however, the rise of the SNP is a bit weird because Scotland used to be dominated by the Labour Party uh, and Labour became kind of like the political monopoly franchise in Scotland for decades and decades and decades throughout the 20th century after the Scottish Tories were kind of wiped out in two successive waves of collapse. The first one kind of like coming around about the, you know, the middle of the century and then the second one coming with Thatcher. And after Thatcher, uh, to be a Scottish Tory was to be an endangered species in electoral terms. Uh, during this period, during the Thatcherite period, the SNP had kind of only really just emerged as a proper force. It was doing like local election things and it slowly managed to claw its way forward. The, the, the actual third party in, Scot in the Scottish context at that time was the Lib Dems, who used to be very strong in Scotland. In fact, the Lib Dem leader at one point was from Scotland, a guy called Charles Kennedy. Uh, anyway, by the time you got to the, like the Blair era and well past the, the, the fall of the Thatcherite conservative governments, um, Scotland had you know, begin, begun to have devolved powers and the nature of the social contract had changed. Uh, by this point in time, Scottish Labour had become sufficiently kind of like entrenched in society that it was basically involved in most significant aspects of the economy, including organised crime. So you kind of had this situation where a lot of how certain a lot of how certain aspects of Scottish Labour worked were affected by this system of kind of like actually functioning corruption. So there was a kind of like enfranchisement via corruption thing that was going on. When devolution kicked in, this kind of unintentionally pulled the rug out of it because the reason why the kind of like the shittiness of Scottish labour was functional was because it was a way of enfranchising the local community in this kind of like brown envelope method. With devolution and the the advent of the Scottish Parliament local communities could become more enfranchised by other methods so there were then two kind of like competing systems. This also coincided with the, the vote share for labour collapsing during the, the, the high disappointment of the Blair years. And as a result, the Labour core began to kind of like integrate itself within like different aspects of the political system. And that voting bloc slowly began to dribble away. And particularly the, millenni the millennial component of that voting bloc, demographically speaking, collapsed and went to other, other different kind of political parties. So towards the beginning of the 20th century, you began to see the decay of Scottish Labour and it kind of getting mired in increasingly like bizarre and stupid council scandals. Uh, there was some really good ones in Glasgow City Council, like at one point the, the leader of Glasgow City Council of, of the 
Labour component because Labour dominated Glasgow Council for years. Um, ended up having an affair with like the son of one of the biggest mob bosses in the city and then like fled the country to Australia after being impl after being implicated in some kind of crime that I forget the deals of, like, I forget the, the specific details of it might have been something to do with drug dealing or possibly real estate usually one or the other with 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 Scottish Labour. Anyway, so yeah, support for informal old guard methods of, of, of access to power kind of dissolved and everything became a bit kind of shit. So you get kind of like devolution in this collapsing edifice. The, the SNP kind of come through and in the context of austerity after Tony Blair kind of lost power and, and Gordon Brown was beaten in the election by the, by the coalition government, um, this really fucked things because Labour was no longer able to deliver on its kind of social contract with the middle classes in Scotland. And there was suddenly this like alternative narrative and this alternative centre of power in the SNP, who then basically kicked Labour's ass continuously in by-elections and countrywide elections and formed successive national governments. As a result uh, of all of this stuff, kind of like the progressive electoral role in Scottish politics was kind of seized by the SNP. They began to define terms of debate. Um, and this also happened in a context where David Cameron was like making these kind of like shitty political deals with opponents, whereby they would give him compromises in exchange for ideologically motivated referendums. Um, and the initial one, was the proportional representation referendum, which was the, the the golden ticket for which the Lib Dems sold their souls. They lost it miserably, but it opened the Pandora's box on UKIP and the SNP also being able to make their demands for referenda. And the results of those were much more dynamic. Anyway, uh, that was, I think, David Cameron's biggest favour to the British state because he effectively euthanized the concept of unionism that way, unintentionally. It is very funny that he did it though. So the referendum happened, um, the yes campaign lost, but it lost on an upswing of popularity and very much kind of like dominated the post-referendum narratives. So now the SNP run Scotland and regularly obliterate the competition in elections, despite having really quite you know, they've occasionally had fairly serious governance scandals around things like council tax reforms and education policy. Um, and in that context, there's this sort of weird political environment where a lot of stuff is riding on the next referendum. There's been a rather peculiar upswing in reactionary politics within the SNP. Labour is so much of a spent force that they can't really reconstitute themselves and the kind of like the progressive slash socialist electoral voice has actually been taken over by the Scottish Green Party, which is a very different animal to the English Greens. And the other weird bit of this is that the Lib Dems have completely collapsed and the Tories are now the second party in Scotland, which a decade ago would have been unthinkable. So that's kind of like the situation where we are in Scottish politics in general. Um, and the within that context, there's mysteriously a giant pile of transphobes and we shall try and uncover where all of these worms have come from a brief note from an english person about the greens scottish greens are different from the english greens in that like in the english greens you basically just have brighton and a bunch of turfs whereas in scotland now although there are some transphobes in the party there's also a bunch of uh pro-trans people including um the scottish greens have always been better on this stuff than the english greens 
Yeah, but the point I wanted to make specifically is that <clears throat> the English greens are basically inv in infested with with transphobes, whereas like the Scottish greens, it's like very much a, a warring process. So even though there are transphobes in the Scottish greens, it's not like the English greens at all. And they recently unveiled a policy that was pro trans healthcare reform in the good way. Many, a lot of that is because um, unlike the SNP, the Greens, at least uh, a couple of them who are like more higher up, actually have principles. Yeah, I, I think that's... Which the British don't have, which the English don't have. Um, but like, that's something that I'd actually like to talk about a little bit later, um, specifically in the context of the SNP. So to start with... Um, a lot of what we're going to be talking about isn't necessarily uh, turfism. Uh, turfism is a very specific beast um, which has its roots in second wave feminism and it ostensibly works by feminist ideals. It, of course, in practice, it doesn't. But what we see in the SNP and what is rapidly being taken over in Scotland is almost a reaction, like a kind of reactionary conservatism in which transphobia is, is a talking point and a dog whistle for what side you're on. England missed what was going on in Scotland, in part because it's Scotland. Throughout uh, Scottish culture, and both in reactionary and not reactionary, there is kind of a, a chip on the shoulder, uh, an underdog syndrome. Um, that's what the SNP uses to organise. In terms of its actual content, the SNP is and always has been something of an ideological mess. Uh, what unites them is like a vague social conservatism and wanting independence. What this means is, you know, there are people who are relatively socialist in, in um, the SNP, but there's also Tories. It's held together with glue and duct tape. And right now that's coming apart. Scotland has been almost like a testing ground for... Um, not just tariffs, but trans, uh, but transphobic organizers taking over the mechanisms of politics. It has been largely ignored in like the news and articles. You always see articles like how tariffs mainstream themselves in the UK, but what they mean is how tariffs mainstream themselves in England. And I feel that the distinction between Scotland and England in this is very meaningful because in many ways, What's currently happening and has happened in Scotland has almost beat for beat mirrored how transphobia has propagated itself at down south. Particularly when I look at, you know, major SNP figures and the way that they've kind of like fallen on one or other side of this aspect of culture war, it does very much seem like a, a kind of a precognition of what could happen in wider UK politics with relation to, to trans stuff. Like if you look at kind of like the, the internal rivalries within the SNP between the kind of like the, the younger progressive wing, I guess like the, the, the perfect example of that would be someone like Vary Black hmm. versus, versus like these kind of like old, like lawyerly uh, upper middle class chuds like, like Joanna Cherry. Very it's reminis interesting that you say that because in, 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 in my experience, like while there is younger progressives. The, the split, in inverted commas, is often between wanting to do independence in a slow and methodical neoliberal manner and wanting to do independence via protest and, like, taking what's ours. 
So yes, yeah, because like Joanna Cherry is definitely on the. I would say I would describe Joanna Cherry as being of the more aggressive faction of the SNP generally. Yeah, like the, the specific thing I'm thinking of is is like the. I guess almost rivalry that she's attempted to drum up in opposition to Nicola Sturgeon, which ultimately I think was a contributing mm. factor in her getting sacked. Yeah, Scottish like Scottish culture is very much about not feeling listened to because let's face it, England is gerrymandered to fuck. Westminster very much makes decisions for us, even with devolved powers, and the SNP rails against that, but also exaggerates that because it builds it builds like nationalism and there's this this persistent idea that um we are the good kind of nationalist you know as if there's a good kind of nationalist there's yeah this is this is the ultimate noble celtic nationalism with highland coups and scott coin which is bitcoin but for scottish yeah it also it's it's like it's kind of like a it's a bit of a chimera because there's that aspect of SNP nationalism. There's like the 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 the, the kind of like the hand upside, and then there's this slightly more uh, like clinical social democratic civic nationalism they use to appear slightly less silly if they want to make a like an economic argument. Mm. Um, and I think like the, the two obviously like come together whenever there's a discussion about um, like uh, fisheries policy or previously it was like oil. Um, they would they would manage to like combine this this these like notionally sensible governance arguments with this form of nationalism that was described as civic but often kind of wasn't even though even if it wasn't necessarily specifically an ethnic nationalism it wasn't necessarily mm. particularly progressive so my background my family has always been an SNP family like up until very recently um my mum used to be a very prominent campaigner with them, but like has recently fell out of that because they don't like that they keep, like she doesn't like that they keep slagging her daughter. But like, I've been surrounded by this uh, my whole life. And one thing that you, you, you find is like, there's this deep distrust of England and even the BBC, you know, because let's face it, the BBC's like, treatment of the news during like the independence movement was incredibly biased and that still like lives on in a lot of folks hates what that leads to is very much this 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 powder keg you know even like the the you know a lot of the left you see radical and the radical independence movement who are like for scottish independence but for leftist reasons at the end of the day a lot of it comes down to we this feeling of we have no power but if we were independent, then we could change, we could make things the way we want them to be. And that's why the SNP, if we ever got independence, would fraction into a billion bits. Yeah, I've, I personally definitely fall into the, into the camp of, of thinking that that would be likely to happen. There are some people who argue that, you know, post-independence, the SNP would be in such a dominant position for like the decade after independence that even internal splits wouldn't actually shake their hold on government and i think ultimately it's a bit difficult to judge but that like is something that like can potentially evolve out of some of the some of the the history that we're going to be talking about today perhaps if one looked at like the culture war side of things then one could see one could see like where the potential cleavages were within the snp ranks and and judge whether or not it would actually lead to a proper party split or not 
Yeah, um, certainly like the outcome of an independence referendum being successful would result in like serious economic and cultural up upheaval in Scotland. Um, yeah. I say, so, this, I say this as someone who is, who is broadly pro-independence for, for reasons that I try and convince myself aren't sentimental nationalism that I haven't quite expunged. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, same. Um, but like, so I think let's go, like, like, let's go into like a brief history of how transphobia became a talking point in Parliament in Scotland. Yes, absolutely. Let's. So let's let's kind of bring back the time machine and like move back to like the uh 2000 2014 before the the independence referendum i remember um, well i was in high school oh i we kind of start off with blogs like wings over scotland's other kind of independence cranks and and, and, and bloggers wings over scotland is a great example because they were transphobic since since fucking when they just never they just didn't didn't start going through glinner on it until like relatively recently but they were an open open transphobe before 2014 but um they were a crowdfunded indie blogger who was quite infowars light in tone very like incendiary very inflammatory very distrustful of the bbc i mean with good reason they like had ties to um a lot of a lot of folks on the SNP, a lot of folks in the SNP like read them, and I think some of the like more transphobic shit may have been picked up for there. Around this time, there were also a couple of not quite grassroots because they were mostly academic, like transphobic groups, kind of starting to get set up. I was involved in one of them because you know when I first uh, came out as trans uh had a lot of weird complicated thoughts about that shit ended up getting like radicalized into some real true scum shit for for reference true scum is weird trans medicalism shit hurt a lot of people but that's something that we can talk about a bit later but anyway uh, I was involved with uh, a group read uh, led um in about 2015 16 maybe by uh, a woman named Magdalene Burns. Uh, Magdalene Burns is one of the co-founders of uh, For Women Scott, which will play an important part to come. These guys were invited on to give evidence um, in hearings on a national census by uh, Joan McAlpin. Basically what these guys were doing was, it, wasn't even really a trans issue so much an administrative issue but they made it out to be a trans issue and basically like there's kind of some mirrors to that and the current uh boycott the census discussion that's happening in the in, in like the turf sphere so to speak but the fact that the census was adding provisions to gauge how many trans people there was was seen as an attack on femininity or specifically an attack on feminism and um, McAlpine basically had a bunch of these uh, for women Scott folks as well as various other this to to basically kind of like steer this committee towards trans exclusionary con like conclusions um, and then after managing to get a bunch of platform to these uh, transphobic organizers she kind of then pushed that towards the GRA consultation I believe uh E&M, like you kind of have talked a little bit about the GRA consultation in the past. 
in 2017 to 2019. In Scotland, ours was like six months before. What you would have is this this weird, like a combination of McAlpine and Sherry, um, who were both at the time like prominent figures in the SNP. So the kind of consultation for the, the, the GRA like took place like about 2017 to 2019. Um, and like McAlpine and Sherry basically made this a big fucking trans talk, uh, like a big fucking political talking point. Yeah, it was a big um, circus for them. Yes, yes. Um, this was after the independence movement and like, but it still very much had that whole like vibe, you know? I think certainly they were motivated by like okay. a desire to employ like a populist strategy to, to shore up their position. That was certainly part of it. It was a lot about like, oh, these trans activists are campaigning to silence women. The, the, the response from Scottish trans organisations was a, a lot of uh, pickets and a lot of like solidarity protests outside these and, and just in general, um, but they were largely ineffective. The consultation was eternally delayed and with the kind of uh, narrative that they were pushing that trans people were attacking free speech, I mean, I remember them campaigning back when I was involved with this shitey fucking organisation. Um, uh, I was well. I was involved in about 2016 before For Women Scott was founded. But um, I remember them like fucking trying to do protests to allow fucking Milo Yiannopoulos to speak at the Edinburgh University because oh they don't agree with the fact that he's a white nationalist, but they'll fight for his rights to to say he's a white nationalist. After you know after all the after all this shit, we see you know the the. Um, Joanna Cherry holding up a printout of a shut the fuck up tariff meeting in Parliament. And that really is like a turning point, right? From when it for when it became not just acceptable to talk about that sort of thing, but expected. The Joanna Cherry thing, I I I don't think that Joanna Cherry had the had the like the understanding of online environments required to do a kind of like deliberate deliberately controversial piece of bullshit in that way i thought that she was like i think she was doing it genuinely but the fact that it became like so heavily ridiculed just brought that conversation just so heavily out into the open air and in, into the public discourse that it that was mm -hmm. when the lid was totally off the jar like prior to that point um you know you were kind of dealing with low-level culture war stuff you were dealing with effectively like you've talked about like campus things or or like mid-level government policy the kind of stuff that the UK as a whole was dealing with, you know, around oh. about in the same period. But this Joanna Cherry thing made it like so, so like big and silly and stupid that after that point, you couldn't really not talk about this when you were talking about the SNP as social policy. And as a result, yeah, it just became part of the program, no matter whether or not you wanted it to. Yeah. And, and like, the context of that picture is very important. At around that time, the SNP was a factional fucking war. Like, this was around the time when it had, it, you know, it had come to light that Salmond was a fucking molester. You know, yeah, he, he was again, a fucking sex criminal. And... Again, like context for the listener, uh, Alex Salmond was the is the former first minister of Scotland. First minister is the equivalent of prime minister in in the Scottish devolved political context. He is the immediate predecessor to Nicola Sturgeon and he resigned 
following the failure of the Yes movement in the first referendum in order that Nicola Sturgeon could take over um, because she was seen as the... I had that cunt in my house. Really? Like, I had that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like I said, family was prominent SNP, like, um, prominent SNP activist. I had that cunt in my house. He came over and all his fucking journal friends traked mud all through the fucking front, all through the fucking living room. Yeah, about this time, there was just like this fucking absolute shite storm. It was a powder keg. Uh, as soon as like that shit happened, there was like this factional like split between, you know, folks who supported Salmond and folks who didn't support Salmond and who were the more neoliberal, stuffy, toughy fucking um, side of things. And these folks, like the trans debate, so to speak, in the SNP became a talking point that said what side of the line you were on. It's because Joanna Cherry and McAlpine, they were extremely like vocal, like transphobes. And they were also extremely vocally on Salman's side, uh, on, on, you know, on the side of literally a fucking sex pest. Um, most feminist thing you can be, but. Yeah, I think, I think particularly it's notable that um, the, like the aggressive immediatist faction of the SNP was not the one that Nicola Sturgeon was in. Nicola Sturgeon is a gradualist. Uh, like she's, she's very like tactically careful when it comes to policies regarding independence and how to achieve it, which is very obvious when you see how she engages with Boris Johnson and particularly how she did during the, during the, the, the Brexit negotiation periods. And as a result, she was on the opposite side of the party to Cherry and McAlpine. Hence why she was so fucking vehemently attacked by their whole clique. Yes, they hate her. They absolutely hate Sturgeon. Um, like Sturgeon was seen as being uh, as being kind of like um, Salmon's political protege in a way. Mm -hmm. And as a result, you know, the, the, the aggressive immediatist faction of the SNP was, was totally happy to have her in as the leader following the, the failure of IndyRef1. But they're also very happy to gripe about what they see as being policy fa failures on her part. Mm -hmm. And Joanna Cherry has been quite aggressive in her pursuit of the more like kind of like rapid minded independence programs. And like it, it's like that that time when she ended up suing over like Brexit related stuff. That was clearly done with that kind of thinking in mind. Like yeah. that was very much a strategic move with relation to her vision of a Scottish independence campaign. And it's worth noting that Cherry and McAlpine here, um, as well as the fucking Magdalene um, for Four Women Scott, these people aren't masterminds so much as figureheads. Yes, like um, um, you, you, you would be forgiven for imagining that Joanna Cherry is actually a fairly stupid person. <laughs> but yeah, so what this meant was not only did the like the trans debate become a mainstream thing that was just expected to be talked about in parliament it became a very fucking controversial topic that when you became an mp or, or when you signed up you would be asked about this to to determine where your sympathies lied in the party right yeah so, the trans question was like the bar was like the barometer by which you figured out which cultural faction a yes. political actor sits within. So what that meant was 
not only are do they oppose any attempts to improve trans lives and uh, like they also use women's rights to attack trans people in Scotland and like do it under the guise of a healthy both sides debate. The um, way that I would frame it is that given that you can't have a debate on the national question inside a nationalist party, what you've got to do is figure out some kind of proxy for the national question. Because um, Yes, it's a proxy, but yeah, it's a proxy that is also killing people. Um, exactly. It's it's very, it's very kind of it's it's a very kind of like it's an idiot's utilitarianism. And what this kind of led to is this 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 situation where now the um, nationalism of Scotland, which had been trending towards we need independence now because England keeps fucking us over, um, is also being leveraged to against trans rights because because of proximity and because we're a scapegoat because we're a proxy conversation to what we think about independence. And I think this stuff's important because TERFs and Tories and other like transphobic organizers have succeeded in mainstreaming this issue by latching onto existing power struggles and existing power hierarchies and then sneaking it in as a part of that. Um, this kind of organizing is explicitly hierarchical and explicitly around like exploiting these existing existing factions they're not necessarily building grassroots um power so much as exploiting um governmental power that already exists and isn't directed properly one thing that i would say is that um just just kind of like relating relating this to to reactionary ideologies in general uh, the, the other way in in which this leaps out to me is that fear of trans people and transphobic politics is very much kind of tied into a fear of progressivism and like the progressivism of the decadent metropolis and i do wonder about the extent to which the like the MPs, like uh, Joanna Cherry and 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 John Lamont, and uh, that kind of person who come from the much more con politically conservative and like non-metropolitan side of the SNP. I think it, there's an argument to be made that they're they're coming to that position because they have this generalized uh, dislike of like progressive metropolitan type stuff, and they actually associate their desire for independence with that with that. Uh, with that fear and, and with that antipathy. And they 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 apply that antipathy either towards like London and Westminster or they or they apply it in like a local social context. And the only way that they can rationalize it in a local social context would either be through like anti-migrant racism, which they can't quite get away with because of the way that the, the social coalitions within the SNP are formed, or they can do it against trans people, which is much more politically expedient and much more easily justifiable, specifically within the SNP. Um, mm. I mean, there is there's a lot of talk about how the SNP is nationalist but not racist. Yes, they're very um, very proud of saying that. It's it's absolutely a big a big uh, deliberately constructed selling point of theirs, and it's it's politically important to them because of the very large and influential uh, like Southeast Asian diaspora population within the Scottish Central Belt, which is an absolute yeah. critical voting bloc and underpins a lot of Labour's support. 
So I feel that we should talk a little bit about how this got, uh, how, like how the, the media environment spread this so much. Oh, I wanted to move on to the media environment as well. Yes, yeah. let's. Um, I guess um, we've got to talk about Indie Ref 1 then. Yes, yes, we do. So in terms about in terms of like like the, the the media environment that was generated by the independence referendum the bbc is pretty untrusted in scotland their balance does uh, their like idea of balance does give tariffs platform because every time the trans debate comes up anytime like a trans activist comes on like or like a, a queer activist comes on like talking about queer liberation they also have to get both sides so they get on a raving fascist but ultimately like i'd say that that's less of a big deal in scotland than it is down south um yeah i mean it is bbc policy as you stated so i guess it, you know it will be it will be there but i feel like there's other contributing factors in scotland that kind of outweigh it yes so during the independence referendum I mean, I remember when my family was involved in that shit, we, we would only watch Al Jazeera, you know? But what this led to was this extremely polarized Cambridge Analytica-ass fucking media environment that was very anti-SMP. I remember one time there was a whole protest out, outside the BBC offices in Scotland that they didn't even report on about like how they weren't reporting on Scottish independence properly. Yeah, like, so I think we should probably fill in a little bit of context for, for the listeners. So like, I, basically none of the major broadcast or print media outlets in Scotland during the 2014 referendum took an explicitly pro-independent stance. They were all either in theory taking a neutral position or they were being explicitly pro-union pro-UK, pro that is, to be specific. Most of the times when we use the phrase unionist in this episode, we're not going to be referring to trade unionism. It's going to be referring to ideological British unionism. So yeah, we, you, you get this situation where, where like pretty much every newspaper, like the Herald, the, the, like the, the Scotsman, you know, the Evening Times, all of those papers were, were taking explicitly unionist stances. And, you know, independence, in, like pro-independence commentary, regardless of which section of the independence movement it was coming from simply wasn't platformed and this really fed the ego anger of the independence movement like i remember, i was really pissed off i think it was a justifiable thing to be pissed off about because it was yeah. functionally like um you know, it, it, it it was um i guess like it wasn't necessarily a coordinated campaign of, of no platforming but it had the effect of just totally disenfranchising the entire media landscape for half of a really critical decision in a liberal democratic society. I'd like to talk about something um, I call the fucking online death spiral, where you're online, you're, this can be on Facebook, I mostly experienced it on fucking online chat rooms and that. You talk about politics and stay tuned into politics. You're reading like the news and the news is always bad news or news against you or Twitter posts from women who want you dead. You, you, you share like posts from TERFs on Twitter to make fun of them or to say, look at this bullshit. You, you respond to a prominent transphobe getting into power in, in Scotland with trans people in Scotland are fucked. And what happens is 
you need something to change. You, you want to change something. It builds and it builds and it builds until you're angry all the time. And either one or two things is gonna happen. You're gonna burn out or you're gonna do something stupid. And this is the political environment that led to myself getting radicalized into the TERF movement. And moreover, led to, leads to places like the alt-right, leads to places like QAnon, and leads to places like Wings Over Scotland. Yeah, I think Wings Over Scotland, um, you mentioned him earlier, but uh, to explain it for, for UK listeners, Wings Over Scotland is best compared to someone like Guido Fawkes, that kind of that kind of role in the blogging community of being like quite crankish and reactionary and very much tied to a very specific political platform. Um, I'm not sure who we could compare it to in terms of UK, in terms of US politics for our international listeners. Um, but to explain, it's, the, it's Infowars like it's it, it, it's it's yeah, it's it's kind of like it's it's social democrat Infowars basically. Yeah. It's right-wing social democrat info wars. He's not a fascist exactly, but he's highly reactionary. Um, yeah, and is is very much interested in is is very much interested in being inflammatory and making a profit beyond having an ideology. Yeah. So, like the rise of wings of wings was basically born out of this choked-off media environment in Indie Ref One, and everybody was kind of everybody who was who was pro india was kind of just like stewing in their own juices over the fact that there weren't that many pro independence media outlets and as a result there was this kind of like rise of of a of a blogger slash online like netizen movement attached to the indie campaign and that you know blossomed in several ways like you did get you do now have a pro independence newspaper called the nationalist like it's a bit of a rag but it does exist um, and but, it also it also blossomed in many ways into the online culture that we currently see on Twitter and on Mumsnet and on these sorts of hate sites. Right, um, cybernets with a with a with a with a big kind of like ground zero thing. Mm -hmm. so um, like cybernets with the with the with the independence referendums equivalent of of like mean Corbynites coming to bully you. Uh, oh, yeah, you know they did they did they did they were there like there was. It wasn't, you know, a, a centrist pipe dream, and it wasn't, you know, a bunch of bots that somebody hired for an advertising firm. Um, oh no, the, like it was it, that that shit was very real. Um, it was, was kind of gamergate-ish, really. Yes, yes. Well, as as a brief aside, that isn't super relevant to this, but turfs fucking hate carbonistas, as they call them. I remember that that was like one of the biggest things. They fucking they fucking hate that shit. It's because oh. Corbynistas are to them rebellious children, and uh, yes. trans transphobes cannot abide a rebellious child. Yes, this is a core ideological plank of Blood and Turf podcast: is that it's all about our dear darling children. Yeah. So, so what this led to was this, just cementing this um, underdogism, this, this form of nationalism, which is about being Scottish. But specifically, not necessarily being white Scottish, if you get me. Yeah, like the, I mean, they're also a bit racist, but they are they are a bit racist, but in kind of like a different way to how like English white nationalism 
um, is baked in. There's definitely there's definitely like like racism baked into certain aspects of Scottish politics, but specifically the the form of nationalism that the SNP is trying to embody is much more defined around the concept of like I guess citizenship rather than rather than ethnicity. Hence why they keep harping up all of this civic nationalist bullshit. It, it, in my opinion, it ends in the same place. It ends in them becoming the yellow Tories, mm. uh, but that's the current phase that it's in i i still don't support it and i think it's bad but it's not it's, as severe here's the thing is i think a lot of it can be traced back to class i think a lot yeah, of this can sure. be traced absolutely. back to class You're because right. it, it's um very much like you know there's this idea that the english are posh there's this idea that the english control us the westminster controls us and it's a proxy for class struggle um, yeah, and a diversion from class struggle. Um, and that's something that is important because transphobic organizing is very, it's quite middle-class. It can be quite academic. It can be quite, it can be quite like fucking guardianista. It can be quite embroiled in like party politics in the case of the SNP, but it is not actively organizing on the ground level you don't see transphobes like going into their workplaces uh, taking people for one-on-one -on -one meetings you don't see them forming neighborhood turf groups right i guess i hope the only, they don't the only exception to this like work like that to this notion there's no like workplace organizing would specifically be in the academic context but obviously you, you, you'll get like homophobic and transphobic attacks in in like any given community but it's oh, right. but they're mostly from rangers fans Oh gosh, I wonder why. We'll get on to that. <laughs> We're going to talk about that later. But what would a Scottish politics podcast be without discussion of sectarianism? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so yeah, like all of this combined has really grown what would later become terrorism in the UK. Um, in fact, I think frankly a lot of terrorism in the uk has originated from the seed so to speak yeah i think particularly when you look at the like the online information environment stuff um the scottish independence referendum and i say again i say this as someone who is still in favor of, of independence who voted for independence in round one um will probably vote for independence with gritted teeth in round two whenever <laughs> that happens um, I feel I feel like the way the, the the online side of it kind of panned out was so much of a was so much of a, like a, a a forerunner of what happened with like the the Brexit online culture wars, and both of those are intricately like tuned into general like expansive and inflammatory culture war bullshit in the UK, which is now so reliant. Like one of its main pillars is transphobia. Yes. Yes. And there's, that's not a coincidence. Like, it's it's not like, you know, it's not like a strict mechanical thing where it's like, oh, well, if you discuss constitutional referenda and reform and like reforms of the government, then that means that you get like a plus one modifier to your nation's transphobia percentage. Like, that's not how that works. I feel like there was a, a kind of an organic relationship between like the rise of movements, which um, and, like some of these movements had characteristics, which meant that other movements began to experience more favorable conditions like the collapse of healthy media 
uh, information environment led to the rise of conspiracy theorists and transphobia has like such a positive ecology and a positive cooperation uh, like a positive cooperative relationship with conspiracy theorism as a method of thinking moreover yeah that it, um, it just ballooned yeah moreover the trans organizing in scotland and queer organizing in general you know has a few weaknesses um i feel that we rely too much on ngos and on doing things by politically campaigning for them um when frankly we don't like that uh, like we don't have the the kind of well what am i saying well it's like the arguments that we have down here in relation to uh like radical trans rights movements down in in, in england particularly particularly in london where there's like quite a large radical community uh like the the trans section of the lgbt movement mm. is still quite liberal when it comes to the the bits that are doing like on the ground activism in in I, london i and don't necessarily agree with that there are radical and active trans organizations see um mate in, in edinburgh action for trans health also in edinburgh there is a lot of like important and powerful lgbtq um and trans activism going on but a lot of the mainstream activism is focused entirely on this um, weird kind of NGO shit that um, frankly doesn't really address the problems. Okay, um, I guess like how I would like rephrase it is like I'm not trying to say that the radical side of it doesn't exist. It's yeah. just that like the the liberal side of it is is kind of it's 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 in a situation where it's organizationally got its head stuck in the sand, and that by nature of them sharing the same campaigning environment totally bogs down the radical side and isolates it yes yes but that's 100 percent what yeah. we experience here every every fucking campaign um or every every protest that we do uh swappies show up to uh well uh, that that is universal unfortunately <laughs> a lot of the smp's argument is at least in terms of its actual material stuff kind of weird a lot of it come, you know, you always hear about the oil shit. This, this like uh, material like argument that's like based on like, oh, you know, we own all the North Sea oil. Every time, like this was, this was like drilled into me, uh, you know, when someone asks, oh, how does an independent Scotland pay for, your, pay for itself? You say, oh, you know, we've got the oil. Yeah, the big thing that kind of scuppered the first independence referendum was the SNP's failure to articulate. Well, this is one of the things that scuppered them, like a few things scuppered them. One, one of the main holes in the program was the SNP's inability to articulate what what the currency policy would be, and also their inability to kind of like explain in clear terms what the economic paradigm for Scotland would be going forward, because they were still like the classic SNP slogan going back to the 80s was it's our oil. They've yeah. been very obsessed with this uh, like productivity and extractive economics focused uh, way of doing things. They are, a near, they are a neoliberal party and that's, that's kind of built into them. Like yeah. the, the, their whole program is like, we need new masters, emphasis yeah. on the masters. And in terms of the actual content, a lot of it kind of comes down to, if not fucking Braveheart shit, but under the cover Braveheart shit, a lot of a lot of laying on the feeling of disenfranchisement and the feeling of disempowerment. And that's why what's going on currently with TERFs essentially having 
taken over the the party is that one of the reasons why that worries me so much is that that is fairly close to becoming fascist rhetoric. Yeah, it's like if if Scotland was going through a much more severe like economic dilemma, then I can definitely see there being a much more socially revanchist wing of the SNP that would put Joanna Cherry to shame, and and then you would start to steal, you would start to see like hostile environment stuff come out. Um, and that would presumably express itself in various different ways in the context of culture war. The SNP doesn't admit it, but they don't they don't address it. But a lot, a lot of Scottish politics is based around sectarianism. Um, yes. It's all Celtic versus Rangers. Um, yeah, Celtic, like of course, being like a, a, a kind of football team that was like founded by you know, immigrants from um, immigrants from fucking Ireland and Rangers being, you know, predominantly Scottish, predominantly Protestant. Um, yeah, it's like there's these different strands of, of social conservatism in, in Scotland that are kind of like blending together to form an environment that makes it very difficult for like pro-trans narratives to get through. And like one of them does come from the SNP side, but there's also other stuff in Scottish politics that, that creates that. And I feel... I feel a little bit bad for for kind of like dragging the homeland into yet another discussion about sectarianism, but I do think we have to talk about it because yeah. like organized religion casts a very long shadow, particularly yes. in the Scottish Central Belt, which is the center of gravity for Scottish political decision making right now. I I mean I grew up in a town where the Orange Order had have marches like you know every couple months. Oh yeah, I remember. Um, I remember marches going down. Um, this like I I grew up in, in uh, the west end of Glasgow uh, on one of the large along one of the larger streets. So it was it was a regular marching route for the order. I think most people who who like grew up in, you know, Scotland, it, it, you know, in any of the, the the big cities, kind of like south of the Tay, would yeah. would certainly have been familiar with like you know, fife and drum. Yeah. And like, don't get me wrong, you know, like a lot of Celtic fans are like fairly leftist. There's a there's a prominent group of uh, Celtic Antifa who show up every time the SDL comes around. But um, it's also this thing where like in, in many ways that shit ties in with this with this debate. You know, I know there's been like leftist and anarchist organizers who um there's been leftist and anarchist organizers who do do a lot of one-on-ones and like a lot of conversations and campaignings with like celtic fans because a lot of them are fairly progressive but then it's also a thing where you know you get your fucking ultras you get your fucking casuals and that shit that shit has such such a weird and and like kind of confusing sway to it I've never been too, too big into football, so I can't even tell you that much about the history, but it's still got its own gravity, you know? Right, so the thing the thing I think is quite instructive, particularly in how like the Orange Order will affect things, is, is first of all, the, the organised religion side of it really does tie into Scottish politics quite a lot, because although Scotland is actually a, a rather secular nation now, particularly in comparison to where it was, say, 50 years ago, there's still various different ways in which like the the, the influence of organized religion is quite palpable and like the, the historical basis of this 
is very much rooted in in like class struggle stuff because there's there's the immigrant dynamic with the with the, like the the Irish immigrant slash Catholic aspects of the of the sectarian divide and then there's there's like more kind of like normative class struggle stuff so for example like the the the, we- the western central Scotland coal fields like throughout the throughout the twentieth century were a core area for the Communist Party. They and like the Communist Party in Scotland actually dominated the miners' unions for decades and decades and decades, and their main opposition was actually from the Orange Order counter organizing against them, which I think is a you know the the, the connection to, to to the rise of transphobia in Scotland is on the on the face of it rather tangential. But if you then compare it to another and kind of similar dynamic, which you saw in the southern USA, which was the KKK trying to push against uh, like black emancipation movements, and particularly the connections between black emancipation movements and the far left, like there's those famous posters which the KKK which the KKK put up, trying to scare black people away from going to communist meetings and so on and so forth. So what I what I do kind of see there, the connection between between like the socially conservative role of organized religion in Scotland and the rise of transphobia is that there's still this kind of like reactionary shadow existing within Scottish political culture, whereby like the vestiges of organized religion, and they might not even be willing to call themselves religiously motivated, but they exist there in the kind of like the cultural, like the cultural mindscape are still influencing people's decisions. There's just these cultural hangovers all over the place that are just... Scotland's, like, uh, it's a country that is, you know, informed by its history. Yeah, um, like, if you look at, like, the Labour, like, the Labour Party, and it... The Scotch Labour Party is fucking wretched Dennis Snakes. Yeah, like, the Labour Party's deeply fucked up, but what's quite interesting is its relationship to, like, simultaneously these, like, quite socially conservative um, factions whilst also initially being kind of connected to certain aspects of the LGBT movement through the, through the, like, the trade union and radical socialist side. Mm-hmm. So, like, it is, it is worth noting that, like, at least in terms of, like, Unite, Unison and that, a lot of them aren't necessarily agitating for trans rights. I mean, a lot of them are agitating for keeping Trident around. Um, they're service unions. Yeah, they're agitating absolutely. for they're agitating for selling health insurance. If you looked at the fall of the, of the Labour Party and its kind of like descent initially into reactionary positions and then just into irrelevance, yeah. um, a big thing that contributed to that was uh, like the millennial cohort totally abandoning them in favour of SNP progressivism. Yes, that, that yes. does that does kind of indicate that there was there, there was this kind of like like the, these ideological factional divides. And yeah, absolutely. And those factions would be sort of like sort of united them uh, like down under like, you know, independence. And I remember a lot of like um, indie marches and that, which, you know, they were the most fucking cucumber sandwich shit I ever seen. Very middle class, very like full of academics, full of like the swappies bringing up their projectors. But then you'd also have folks like Rise and like the SSP who who were, you know, fairly, fairly progressive and trying to do stuff. In like a lot of ways, it kind of makes a, a pretty complicated landscape. And it's worth noting that like while these sectarian kind of divides exist, you know, 
I think a lot, like the average person likely isn't as affected by that shit as you'd think. Um, no, absolutely. Like the, 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 the ugly secret with sectarianism was that it, it, it packed way too much punch for the actual size of its constituency. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And like, I feel like the, you know, it, it's kind of like, it's kind of like dropping a, a rock into a, into a pond. Like the splash is no longer happening, but we're still seeing ripples from it. Yes, definitely. I think, I think like one of the things that kind of keeps coming up here is uh, specifically class. The, we, we talked earlier about TERFs being middle-class organizers. At the end of the day, the reason why we see TERFs so much on like fucking Twitter, they've all got Guardian columns, they're all in the fucking politics, is because that's the only way that those motherfuckers know how to organize. Um, they, they have grown up watching the fucking West Wing and think um, that like the way to become politically relevant and get your, uh, and get your kind of transphobic views out there is to seize the power that already exists within the system. That's kind of where they get their power from, right? We, we, we kind of brought this up earlier, like taking power, like power dynamics that already exist and then applying transphobia to them. It really, it really main, maintains repeating that like this, this shit is all about being proper and reserved and middle class and then reacting angrily to defiance and improperness. And queers are seen as being improper and vulgar. It's very close actually to specifically fashion, crypto fascist obsession with modern degeneracy. Uh, in fact, I remember them spread, like back when I was involved, spreading anti-postmodernism rhetoric because, you know, obviously postmodernism is ruining old cultures and they were spreading all kinds of old artwork and talking about how like modern art was bad. It's... Right, it's, it's fucking, it's fucking embrace tradition, reject modernity stuff, basically. Yes, yes, very much. ERAs failed to consider that trans people are gauche, actually. <laughs> Incredible. Uh, you know, you know, one thing that this, the, 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 com the conversation about like properness and improperness really reminds me of is that um, incident at a pride march in Scotland a few years back where like somebody, somebody was like nicked for, for holding like a banner that said something. I remember that. What um, was the fucking slogan? It was something. It was, it was, was like, these faggots hate fascists. Basically what happened was they had been, it was a queer anti-fab block um, or queer anarchist block actually. And they were fucking pissed. The pride, that pride, they had fucking queer cops leading the goddamn march. So they were like, fuck that. So they set up, uh, made a bunch of posters and marched in front of the cops. The, them nicking the, like those folks was because they were mad that they were getting walked in front of, like, no fucking joke. It wasn't even because of the fucking sign. Yeah, it was literally excuse. like they're ruining our garden party. I'll tell you, next um. At the uh, Edinburgh Pride, which was after that, a bunch of folks just like did a whole fucking banner drop about it, like Pride Not Profit and all that. Um, it was like, the, uh, like the, the I remember the, the, the Pink News like putting out an article like, oh, the police are still searching for the, the people who damaged historic property to spray paint Pride Not Profit along the march. Um, it it's worth noting like, like Pride in Glasgow and Edinburgh is infamously corporate. Um, going back mm -hmm. to the labour thing, in Glasgow's case specifically, that is definitely very much down to the degree to which Glasgow labour really pushed to gentrify the LGBT community. 
it's again, it's that cucumber sandwich shit. I, I to be clear, I say cucumber sandwich. What I mean is like a nice, a nice protest that might as well be a parade, and you can have some nice cucumber sandwiches and and say, oh, jolly well, I do love this sort of thing. Well, um, famously, the suffragists, um, <clears throat> when fighting for uh, enfranchisement, did do cucumber sandwich tea things, and they never got anywhere. <laughs> but yeah, like it's. It's interesting. Um, and I feel like that is kind of where our power lies, right? Because trans people, the, the trans struggle, the queer struggle is a working class struggle because we're a fucking marginalized group. We're fucking overwhelmingly affected by poverty. We're overwhelmingly discriminated against in work. Um, every trans person you talk to in Scotland has a story about how they weren't hired for a job and it wasn't clear why, but it was because they were trans or I used to work in an airport and I remember getting complaints because I had to go through the women's goddamn fucking inch deep scanner. This shit was like, uh, the fight for trans liberation isn't just arguing with people on Twitter. In fact, arguing with people on Twitter isn't gonna do shit. It is like a fucking standing up for the working class um, mm. because we are, disproportionately affected by the struggles of the working class. The like the archetypal example of this kind of like middle class Scottish uh, like conservative obsession with like doing things in the proper form and and like doing politics in a way that is like non-disruptive. Like the, the, the perfect exemplar of that mindset has got to be JK Rowling. Um, because she really for years represented like the the like the like the silent majority middle ground middle class mindset in Scotland, whereby she was I, vaguely. I don't think it's a silent majority. Keep in mind that J.K. Rowling, like J.K. Rowling, like being Scottish is not a mistake. Like she's she she was um, a Remain wonk before, not a Remain fucking uh, a better together wonk before she was the tariff. Uh, so people oh, yeah, in Scotland that's what I mean. fucking I was referring it. to like that that period is like the period when she was still like largely beloved and hadn't quite fucked up her PR image. She was very much representing mm -hmm. this kind of like total normie mindset. Yes, yes, okay, I see what you mean now. Yeah, and like it's interesting, right? Because she is cut from the same cloth as the Scottish tariff. She quotes Magdalene Burns Hell. When, when, when that fucker died, uh, she visited her, as well as Glynner, visited her on her deathbed. She uses their language, uses their rhetoric. Um, gals in deep. Um, and I think it's, it's important to talk about like how she got from that very like proper and like very normal, she pretends to be working class. She was never working class. She's not a thought leader. She basically just spreads things other people say, but she is like um, one of the things that people assume. Like she is one of the, the one of the like icons of tariffness, I guess. Um, yeah, she's definitely not a leading theoretician, but she's like a, a, a big team player in the movement. Yeah, I don't think she, I don't think she's important really, um, except as an example. The only reason why she's important is because of her fame. Like she doesn't mm. pay, play any other structural role. Like yeah. she, she doesn't have a role in, in creating the, like the, the theory or the political underpinning. She's just like a big name. Yeah. 
Um, Which shouldn't be underestimated, to be fair, because I've seen the kind of like memification of, of rolling taken up by bigots to the point, <clears throat> I think, even further than um, Burns, who obviously was like a really committed anti-trans bigot. Like, oh. Ronin doesn't really have to do anything, but she has a similar effect just by dint of mm. already being famous. Yeah, like the thing yeah. is, Mag Magdalene Burns is a name that is largely only known to people who are deeply invested in this area of the culture war that like the, the average mm -hmm. man on the street doesn't doesn't know or care who Magdalene Burns is whereas yeah. Rowling, you know she has a-list celebrity clout so yeah she it's interesting um because she very much um, and you guys talked about this a little bit in your um uh a little bit in your um episodes on her but I think the fact that she is Scottish is an important thing to think about here and I'd also like to talk a little bit about my own experiences in like being radicalized into the TERF movement and specifically something that I call the JonTron effect after, after the famous white nationalist YouTuber where she basically said something or rather reblogged or liked something horrid and then everyone calls her out. She gets a bunch of negative feedback and then a bunch of TERFs start love bombing her and talking about how, oh, you know, all these TRAs, well, at the time it was trans activists, so they were calling people, um, are like, are trying to, are trying to censor you for like standing up for women's rights. And like, you, you know, you get this whole like crowd of people validating you and seeing your opinions are good so you lean into that because obviously these people who are being nice to your right you say something that maybe pushes the boundaries a bit more again you get hate bombed you get love bombed and, and you get told specifically that you're valid for saying the bad thing yes it's validation yes. and this is an important part of how TERFs but also the alt-right the QAnon movement get like get high profile people on site through this harassment uh, through this like um through this like love bombing and through also the fact that people call them out you know um it's very much weaponizing the proclivity of liberals to want to own someone and it's why engaging in these people on twitter and engaging them in think pieces and that sort of thing is in some ways playing into these people's hands. Yeah, they're very obsessed with controlling the information environment, um, not f necessarily for the sake of, of like creating a specific platform. It's more just so that they can have like arbitrary control over the social standards of what truth is. Yes. And in that, to that extent, there's definitely certain kinds of argument which are counterproductive to engage in. Um, and JK Rowling's brilliant for starting those arguments kind of often how this sort of thing goes is someone says something incendiary and then a bunch of people who are well-meaning you know like spread that and say look at this horrible thing that's being said tying in you know with the stuff we talked about earlier the doom spiral it, it spreads outwards and then those people angry and not having any outlet except to tell her on twitter fuck off they flock to it and say fuck off and then that person gets radicalized and i think this does happen both ways and certainly like it would be i think it'd be really presumptuous for us to say that we don't have 
like online radicalization spirals within the radical left because we, we absolutely do the question for us organizationally is whether or not those are like articulated in like a positive manner that's good for the individual involved or if they're articulated in a negative manner that just ends up being reactionary by another name frankly frankly i don't think that this kind of organizing is helpful um i would be while, i would be really skeptical at anyone trying to say that it's it's useful in the broad sense i i would say that you can you can probably have like marginal specific cases where somebody turns out okay but i certainly wouldn't advocate for it the fact of the matter is it's unhealthy and it makes you miserable um we're much better off organizing on the lines of solidarity organizing on the lines of mutual support mutual aid and just getting in touch with your fucking local communities. Don't harass JK Rowling on Twitter because it won't do anything. Go out and fucking join Action for Trans Health or something. Or but start, like, you know, a local mutual aid group for your for the trans people in your area uh, yes. offline, preferably. But yeah, like, I think this, this ties in, like, in a really important way with Scottish feminism in general, right? And how online and middle-class feminism tends to organize. I've, I've been organizing with um, Sisters Uncut, which is a kind of local feminist organization. Those folks, they know what they're fucking doing. You know, they, they keep stuff local, but ultimately a lot of what they do tends to be a little bit reactive. Um, and a lot, and, and like that, this is something that um, they have very much been moving away from and trying to organize against. These, these folks are doing some fucking good work, but a lot of Scottish feminism is either very involved with the NGOs um, and specifically very involved with well-meaning middle-class people who then start an NGO and use their power and money to fund it and ultimately aren't interested in engaging in class struggle or groups who don't really know how to organize in real life. Um, not real life, I should say offline, because online is still real life. It kind of reminds me a little bit of, I mean, it's not entirely technocracy, but it kind of reminds me a bit in 2009 when people were like, oh, there's an app for that. You can make an app for that. You can solve everything with the apps. It's like, we can solve everything with a sort of NGO style charitable organization. Yes. And a lot of queer activism, a lot of feminist activism on the left has been almost not co-opted by that, but like has been feeding into that and like, while allies in the NGO sector are one of our strengths, we need to be relying more on mutual aid. I think it's also important to talk about like the role of academia in both oh, li the liberation of trans folks and queer liberation in general, but also in the role of organizing for tariffs. Because yeah. while academia has its ties to queer liberation and some cool stuff happens there, it's also one of the main places tariffs organize. It, British academia is, is actually quite noteworthy for the degree to which it has a lot of just like general kind of crankery in it. Like interestingly, while I was doing the research for this for this episode, I, I actually ran across someone whose existence I'd completely forgotten, a, a guy called Craig Murray, who's like a kind of like a, a commentator on like international affairs. Uh, ostensibly a, a, a left-wing one and an anti-imperialist one but who is actually like quite prone to conspiracy theories mm -hmm. and he is a Scottish commentator and he's connected to like the radical independence movement and he I think is like a wonderful example of this 
but there's also certainly dozens and dozens of examples of like British academic uh, conspiracy theory brain within within the transphobic movement at large. In fact, it's probably the transphobic movement's like defining characteristic, really. Historically. Oh, so until really recently, until the start of the pandemic, I actually worked at um, Weatherspoons, you know, the fucking Brexit man Tim's pub. It was it was absolute fucking garbage for like fucking on shifts till like four or five a.m. regularly. Um, 10 hours, like barely a fucking half hour break. Um, and then I got laid off because they heard there was a pandemic on. Um, I loved the job. Um, I didn't love how we were treated, but you know, if, if it was fucking cooperatively owned, I would have gone back and done that in a flash. I fucking love bar work. But I remember one time when like I was, uh, I was uh, in this, in this uh, kind of, in this job, like, you know, I, I love having a conversation with a customer, right? Like the, the mood, the, the, the kind of, you're like across the counter and like some fucking, some fucking bloke like is like, hey, he's a Jager bomb. And you're like, all right. And then you give them two shots instead of one and you give them a wee wink. Um, and then they give you a fist bump across the counter. That makes me feel like the coolest person on earth. Anyway, so I'm talking to this customer and he says, oh, he looks like fucking Mark Twain. And he says like, oh, you know, I'm a philosophy lecturer at the Edinburgh University. And I was like, all right. And he's like, so you're trans. Oh dear. Yeah, and I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And he's like, you know, I've got a friend who's trans. His name's Gerald, but he wants to be called Lorraine or some shit like that. I can't remember the exact names. Great and start like, the conversation, really. Okay. So as a trans person, you have this conversation thousands of fucking times and every goddamn time, as soon as this conversation begins, I'm no longer one trans person. I'm a superposition of every trans person in the world just kind of squished into one human form because if I say anything that's rude, then he's going to hate all trans people forever. So I just have to be like, oh, so you should probably refer to Lorraine as Lorraine and, you know, use the proper pronouns because, like, like that's what would make her com comfortable. It's like, oh, please don't be cruel to hard. another human being. <laughs> yeah, please don't be cruel. And I'm like, yeah, but he's like, oh, that'd be really hard, you know, because I've known him for years. He doesn't really talk to me that much. And I'm like internally thinking, yeah, I wonder why. Yeah, why? <laughs> that's very much like, that's very much the customer service experience is like being trans and working in front facing customer services. Like oh. both of those things coming together because you're working in a very feminine, like, I, I, I've worked in hospitality pre and post transition Aye. and regardless of your gender it's a very feminized uh, sector I would say because oh, wow. oh, you're expected oh, wow. to do feminized labor and it is mostly women um, and it is like, yeah, there, like, like almost everyone was like a woman but it's, it is really that thing of just being like I have to be nice to the customer and also because I'm trans I've got to be the trans ambassador at the same time yes the yes. emotional labor is like too much it's twofold but anyway so I'm talking to this guy and like I explain this to him and he seems receptive enough. Um, and then like, you know, we get talking and he's like, oh, so we get talking about feminism and I'm like, you know, like I've, I, I, I do some activism in my local place. So I, I do stuff with Sisters Uncut and then all that. And he's like, oh, why, why? That's very cool. You should check out this book by this woman. I'm like, oh, what's her name? And he's like, 
So I keep a, a notebook on me everywhere because I'm a fucking union organizer. Um, and you keep a notebook everywhere on you to, you know, write down notes on folks. Um, and getting to write it down, he's like, so is this book by this woman, uh, she's like a feminist, but she's quite radical. Um, and her name's Mary Daly. And me being the fucking dingus that I was, I did not know who the fuck Mary Daly is. And I'm like, oh, hi, that sounds really cool. I'll, I'll check it out. And I go home and it's like holding a fucking loaded gun. And I Google her up. And the first thing I see is some fucking hate, hate shit about like how all trans women are the modern Frankensteins or whatever. And I'm like, ah, this man did a hate crime to me. I came back in fucking furious the next day. And he's a regular at the pub. Point up to my fucking manager's like, I am going to tell this man he is not welcome in here anymore. And the manager was like all humming and hawing. And I'm like, no, he stays. You're going to tribunal. And they didn't like that. But um, anyway, fucking, it's, it's fucking interesting, right? Because it's like this, this fucking shit has taken goddamn root. And like, this guy is an educated guy, right? I have no fucking, like, he must have known what the fuck he was doing. You know, he, he fucking intentionally handed me a goddamn loaded gun and made me pull the goddamn trigger. So I ended up looking up uh, Mary Daly after, you know, after, after you mentioned her just now. And she was uh, Janice Raymond's dissertation advisor. Holy shit. Um, and, you know, close students of turf theory may remember that Janice Raymond's dissertation was published under the title The Transsexual Empire. So Mary Daly, Mary Daly is deep at the source. Yeah. So like this guy, this guy fucking was deep in it. And like we were having a cordial conversation. And like, so, but like I, I confronted him and I said, like, hey, so this thing that you said was not on. And he's like, oh no, 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 I was just trying to, I was just trying to give you another perspective. And I'm like, why did you do that? And he's like, I, well, I would, I would give anyone that book. I'm like, you'd give anyone this book that calls me a fucking Frankenstein by a woman who wants me dead. And he's like, no, you're just being dramatic. And it's like, it's interesting, right? Because it shows how this sort of mainstreaming in academia alienates people from the material like facts that this isn't just an opinion this is people's well-being and their lives it's it is some fucking fucked culture right like this this shit is all written in very flowery academic language and and these folks all recruit by flattering intellectuals and like appealing to that sort of that sort of respectability culture and this is something i think that is Unlike the, the SNP stuff that we talked about uh, earlier, I think this is stuff that is also very relevant, like down south. I mean, I and many other trans people, although I, I get—I do not speak for the English trans people. Um, <laughs> I wish I did. I'm so glad that I can welcome the ambassador from the trans people on board the Starship Enterprise in this episode. <laughs> babe, babe, I am the ambassador for the English trans people. <laughs> Anytime a fucking trans person is having a conversation with a man, we're, you're the goddamn ambassador for the trans. But I mean, this is the thing that I, I, I've gotten to the point where I'm not, you know, being an anti-academic reactionary, but it's become so prevalent, especially around here, that like the middle class, especially a professionalized middle class, you kind of just have to assume that they're at the very least receptive too tough stuff because I, I think it dovetails so well with like the, the aims of the middle class especially the vaguely reactionary middle class who are susceptible to things like nationalism because it flattens 
all of their anxieties into an easy to digest uh, fear, right? Yeah. Um, well, because the middle I mean, class are anxious. They're squeezed from both sides and they're terrified of the working class. Oh, I, oh, I. So for some context, I, um, I, I've mentioned Magdalene Burns a couple of times. The reason I'm talking so much about this fucking horrible woman is I actually knew her in person, um, like at my lowest fucking point. Um, like I said, so when I first came out as like trans, had a lot of weird feelings about dysphoria and about being like taken seriously as a trans person, um, which kind of ended up through this, this like, you know, John Tron effect and through like this fucking radicalization, like doom spiral, like becoming very much entrenched with like, within like the true scum shit. Um, and I, through trolling on fucking Edinburgh University's Facebook, like got approached by Magdalene Burns um, and invited to this shitey fucking um, group of cronies that would hang out at the um, uh, Pleasant Student Union. Um, call, uh, they call themselves Fourth Wave because the third wave is full of degenerates and we're going to be the better than that. And like, um, so I knew her before she founded uh, Four Women Scott. Um, like back when she was very big into boxing, um, she was always talking about like uh, all this fucking like shit about how like, you know, trans women um, were ruining sports because it would be so much easier with male privilege to get um, to get a fucking um, platform and to get like a fucking uh, trainer and all that. And like one of the regulars at these, these meetings was just a lecturer at the Edinburgh University. I don't know her actual name um, because she always used a pseudonym, but like, because she was afraid of getting called out for being a turf, but like, she was all like, oh, you know, hand wringing and all about the respectability, but also she was like, constantly being fucking pampered by folks. And I remember like one of the, one of the first kind of turning points in my own radicalization was, and I, I'm not gonna pretend this was the moment that turned me back, uh, like back into a respectable fucking queer anarchist activist, because that was a process that took a lot of support and mutual support from like my friends, from my local community. Um, and also a lot of peer pressure, but like, I, I remember like we uh, like being brought into this like Thanksgiving party. Who does a Thanksgiving party in Edinburgh? Who fucking, can, who fucking knows? But, um, and like they all sat in like a circle, and until then it had mostly been talking about like you know the two cutes. Um, that's what we call people who use. That was what we called fucking people who used like male pronouns and people who like were non-binary. At this meeting, like, Magdalene had, like, a bunch of friends from down south up and, like, this university lecturer and, like, a bunch of folks. They all sat in, like, a circle and just talked shit about trans folks. And there was me and then there was another trans woman there. And, like, I just came to this fucking realization, like, oh, shit, I'm one of the good ones. Um, and, like, downed a fucking bottle of red wine and then left. We were talking earlier about how during the GRA consultation, trans counter-protesting didn't stop it. And that was because they were having these sorts of meetings, these sorts of private meetings to like 
talk to people who are receptive, academics, middle-class organizers, even like SNP politicians, and like invite them, you know, invite them out to like a fucking dinner or like, and, and just talk about this shit, you know? Um, they weren't organizing at a grassroots level, but they were organizing behind closed doors. Um, I remember like there, there was this um, prominent, there was this big party that they did called uh, Swerf and Turf, um, where like, you know, once in a while they would all get a surf and turf with a bunch of people who hate sex workers and like make jokes about the trans activists and like, oh my God, they hated Amnesty International because one of the, they, like they were convinced that one of the founders was a pimp or something. But um, it was just some real shady kind of cultish shit. And frankly, I'm really glad that I got out and like, it's really down to my own getting involved with the local queer community, with the local punk community, um, and realizing that I was being a fucking hate criminal that led to getting out of that. At the end of the day, that I'm, it's also this thing of like, those kinds of connections don't break by people being mean to you on the internet. That only solidifies them. Turf activism relies on institutional acceptance. They have a strong belief in institutions, in the law and in hierarchy and, and, and in education um, because they believe that being intelligent and respected leads to being listened to. And this, isn't, this is turf activism, to be clear, not necessarily transphobic activism, which relies equally as much on, um, on populism. But like an example is for women masquerade as an NGO and getting SMP MP retweets. Um, they do like astroturfing, like LGB Alliance and all those fucking shell companies that don't actually exist, but are run by like one middle-class person in a basement with a couple thousand pounds, you know? It relies on this idea of respectability and that's the only way to, the only way to counter that is by not being respectable and by local activism. One thing I think is completely wild is that Swerf and Turf is a, is, is a um, term people on, you know, leftists on and offline used to refer to the fact that people who hate trans people often hate sex workers. I cannot believe that they kind of lampshaded that and then had like some twee sort of Sunday lunch thing out of it. That's wild to me. Yes. Yes. Um, oh, oh my God. But I remember very, very like... Very cuck Nando's energy. Very cuck Nando's. Like... Okay, so I'm not going to go too much into it. Explain for but... international listeners what the hell "cuck Nando's" means. Okay, so basically, um, a bunch of Blairites tried to start a new party called Change UK or Cuck. They realised that this was a terrible name and went for four, through four rebrandings, if I remember correctly. And they launched this new party with a picture of them all dining at Nando's, one of the you know. Uh, worst places they could have done it anyway they all lost their jobs yeah it was like a ta yeah it's like a taco bell but instead of based on like um kind of like um mexam cuisine it's based on uh north african english cuisine um, yeah it's it's all right it was a grim it's a, a grim shit. story but anyway it is the same fucking energy as that and then but like that shit worked i remember going through i remember the all of those discussions about the logo design magdalene burns really wanted this fucking evil looking mask with a cat on it all the fucking hand-wringing turfs were like oh no 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 that looks too scary 
we need to, we need something much more like like gentle and like something that will make people take us seriously and real shit like that. I don't think they ever really liked me because, I mean, I'm trans. It does occur to me that given given the context of, of you kind of like being picked out from like the university Facebook page, which is essentially the place where a bunch of 19 year olds go to bicker by Magdalene Burns does indicate there was like a deliberately predatory aspect to the way that they viewed um, like bringing you into the organization. Oh yeah. Oh fucking yeah. That shit was fucking targeted because she grooming. was doing it to, to other folks, but it's, like- It's basically yeah. grooming. Yes, basically. They talk a lot about handmaidens, but I think the fact that they talk about handmaidens is indicative of something deeper going on down there. Um, for, for reference for listeners, uh, a handmaiden is what they call women who are down for trans, for trans folks. Yeah, like, I remember, like, the big thing back then was the cotton ceiling, which, like, you know, is still something that only TERFs fucking care about. For reference, the cotton ceiling is the fucking shit of, like, oh, if a lesbian doesn't want to date um, a trans person who's non-op, then they're fucking, then they're a transphobe. Um, which is something that no one fucking says, except maybe like a couple of like people who are way down the deep end on uh, on Tumblr, because it's fucking irrelevant. But like TERFs really grab onto that shit. If I'm not mistaken, it's a ref. It's like a schoolyard reference um, to the fact that like trans uh, trans women don't menstruate, yeah, right? Yeah. Like it's a fucking tampon yeah. reference, which is just so fucking childish. Because ha- shall we shall we talk about like your bit? Uh, you're, you're, I, I believe you wanted to mention like stuff about the archetypical West of Scotland male. Yeah, so this this occurred to me halfway through recording the episode that we, it, given that we're discussing uh, like the role of of like feminism in establishing these kind of like social conservative norms, we should probably also discuss the role of like Scottish masculinity norms, which are actually a bit different from the rest of the UK. Scotland's got a bit of a weird thing going on with its conceptualization of masculinity and and what like the 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 norm for being a guy in Scottish society is or or was when I was growing up. Um and I feel like although that doesn't necessarily impact onto like the activist side of this or or our, or our recent discussion about um like university stuff it does kind of have an interplay with the discussions around sectarianism and the discussions around like the role of kind of like middle-class crack versions of, of, of conservative feminism that, that are quite core to, to this discussion. I'm kind of stuck for where to start but basically there's you know it almost ties into that that thing you mentioned earlier down about uh, the way in which like class dynamics are plastered onto the perceptions of the English and the assumption that someone English is is, is automatically upper class. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And part of that is because like middle class people in Scotland, may, like they put on a fake English accent. Yes, like lots of middle class people in Scotland sound a lot like me. Uh, the reason why I have an English accent is because my parents are English. Um, but there's a significant chunk of, of people, uh, particularly, well, this is a whole other thing, but arguably particularly on the East Coast, who have a much kind of like softer accent if they're in like the more affluent areas. And this, I think, is tied into the, gets tied into these like masculine perceptions of there being like an, an effeminate male that you mustn't be, otherwise you're not a proper man. Um, 
Oh, I, there was so like, much of that shit when I was growing up because I grew up in one of the new towns, you know? Oh, so, God. Like, Would you mind explaining that for the listener, please, Dom? So the new towns are a fucking wild thing. So we need to go back to the fucking 1950s after the Second World War. Um, like, so after the Second World War, a bunch of fucking poor folks lived in lived in like lived around Glasgow and around Edinburgh and even down south somewhat. And um, it's important to note that during the Second World War, Glasgow got the shit bombed out of it. Oh I, oh I. Um, and I believe it was Labour. Did, didn't he fucking like didn't he fucking like that there were a bunch of poor people living there? Uh, so they were like, okay, so these places that you're living here, uh, they're slums. Uh, and declared that those that, that those places were like not fit for human habitation. And what they did was they systematically scrambled everyone up and flattened their houses and then moved them into these so-called new towns. And the new towns are towns that they built all at once from scratch. Right. Yeah. Um, so like part of the part of the post-World War II, like settlement that the state struck with like the people in order to make sure that we didn't just fucking collapse as a society was that they were doing massive amounts of social housing like this is part of the reason like essentially if you want to imagine a new town imagine something that like looks kind of like um the way that people describe milton Keynes, except with about a fifth of the budget and lots and lots of council housing yes uh, and it's all beige and pink and like you fucking, these places were built like in this just sprawling web, all of them around like these big fucking huge shopping centers. Um, and that was where everything was. If you didn't have a car, you were fucked. Um, it sounds like the game Workers and Resources. Yeah, it, it, it basically, these are the kinds of towns that you build in like a city simulator game. Yeah, it's it was very, just houses. And but every once in a while you get a pub and every once in a while you get like a school and maybe a wee football field and, and, and maybe a Morrison's. Right. But other than there's, that, there's fucking nothing. Yeah, there, there's like two ways in which like the existence of the new towns and 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 so, some other things kind of like really affected the development of like uh, Scottish like masculine norms in the 20th century. And it's to do basically with like working class discontent and like people just being driven into total misery zone. Um, I guess like a close equivalent of this would be like the immiseration of former mining communities, for example. Oh, I, oh, I. Like, well. um, before, before I was in, before I was in a new town, I was in a, an old mining town that still very much felt dead. Right, um, and this, this is a, this is a common, this is a common norm across a lot of like Western nations. This story will be, you know, familiar to anybody who's listening in the U.S. who lives in Virginia, for example. Yeah, Thatcher killed the mines, and then. All these people were just stuck there. Just right. Nothing. So this this kind of like chimed in with the like you know the, the classic British uh, like working class man mind was like very much tied into a certain kind of like pride of place, and once that got pulled out, there was just this total like crisis of confidence within within like the British within like the British uh, like brain, which is arguably pushed on a lot of 
kind of how British reactionary thought works. Like certainly a lot of like anti-migrant rhetoric is is tied into this, in, is tied into these, like insecurities relating to like semi uh, like semi urban housing and employment struggles. Because we were fucking suffering and we needed someone to blame, but we were so atomized that like it's really hard to organize when you need a car to get to anywhere you can book a room in. Right, exactly. So, so like in in the context of of this happening to all of these like working class men, like straight through from the fifties through to the nineties, um, what that meant is that like those 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 kinds of like mental stresses were pushed in a number of different directions, and one of the ways in which they went was in the psychosexual direction of lots and lots of social tensions building up in these communities, and that intersected with existing sectarianism. It intersected with existing just like cultural misogynistic norms and it created things like cultures of like heavy drinking and gang violence. And yeah, result, and just a like, lot of like just a lot of folks who deserve a lot better. Yeah, um, it's really, it's really like it, it's a, it's certainly better than it used to be. Like Easter House is not as bad as it was. Sorry, Easter House is a, a, a rather like deprived section of West of Scotland. It's like a it's like on the edge of Glasgow and it, it's known as being like one of the more impoverished areas of the country. Like it's not as bad as it used to be, say, 20 years ago. A lot of that is because of mutual aid organizing. Um, I know that like, you know, in, in Bathgate, for instance, um, uh, a branch of the IWW is currently be in the process of being set up and they're doing some fucking good work. Um, getting... At the end of the day, a lot of this comes from people being alienated, alienated from their local communities and alienated from their labor. Um, yeah. and, and, and like that leads to these blokes just being fucking just left for dead. Yeah, so you kind of get this, this like general milieu of, of, of completely disenfranchised, cast out guys who just exist in the background of Scottish culture for decades on end. And the, the effect that had on like norms of Scottish masculinity is that like, A, um, there's like still this vestigial, very jealously guarded working class pride. And it's kind of like tied into elements of like a hard drinking culture of like very, very like rigid. Hard drinking, form. hard working. Um, hard, hard drinking, hard working, and on, occasional, on occasion hard fighting, especially if it's the footy. Oh, I, oh, I. I mean, you get like, you try and explain to an American what the fuck a casual or an ultra is, they just won't get it. Which is weird because if you look at, for example, Philadelphia, which is, um, you know, <clears throat> has been quite a deprived area in America, like their fans are known for rioting at the drop of a hat. Hmm. I feel like, I feel like it's just that that might be, that might be to do with like the, the specific relationship which America has with uh, like team and organized sports being, much less class oriented than ours is oh de yeah. definitely yeah because because football and like scotland is such a brilliant example of this in the european context like football is just so closely tied into like working class uh community um stuff yeah yeah whereas in america where you have basketball which is like so famously the sport of like people who are um densely urban populated um it's still it'll you'll still have like Joe Biden going to a game or whatever the fuck, which like you don't really have with football to the same extent at all. Not really, yeah, because I mean, you're football is associated with hooliganism in a lot of ways. 
it's the, the famous joke about football and rugby is that uh, rugby is a game for hooligans played by gentlemen and football is a game for gentlemen played by hooligans. Oh yeah, like I remember like, you know, when I was working at fucking Spoons, uh, we are not allowed to, to show the footy, but we're allowed to show the rugby. To be fair, that I would argue is a workplace safety issue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would, be, um, I would be willing to use that as an organising demand if I was doing pub work in Glasgow. I'm not ashamed of that one. Oh, I, oh, I. So, <laughs> um, perhaps we should tie this back to, to masculinity and wrap up this wee portion. Yeah. I guess, like, what I'm trying to express is that, like, the, the, the West of Scotland and the reason why this is important to discussions of transphobia in Scotland is, is very much like a specific kind of, like, a, a specifically, like, reactionary vision of, like, a masculine working class man he's got short hair um you know he goes down to like work in the shipyards or whatever and even though this is completely historically anachronistic to any kind of like actual representation of the scottish economy after 1980 it has nevertheless dominated uh, like scottish conceptions of what masculinity is meant to be up until really very recently indeed like, and that's what TERFs think we are underneath them. Right, they think, they think that trans women, in, particularly in, in Scotland, trans women are like a bunch of hairy, hairy blokes that should be going down the shipyard to make the next destroyer. Would you say also that that varies um, uh, from like, for example, like the north of England, kind of like um, anachronistic masculinity in the sense that I know a lot of, there's a lot of tension about like, um, you know, English people coming to university or English people moving in and having that sense of like, well, we're different and yes, clinging on to very that, similar to that. It's very, very similar identity. There's, this, there's definitely this aspect of uh, like a reactionary concern over, over like an incoming uh, like metropolitan force from the outside. That's the, the limp-wristed elites. Yeah, basically, mm. this, this is where the, this is where the, the, the kind of the mentality that like the English are all fags comes in. Which I think really is a big force, especially when you look at historically, like if you look at, and I'm talking about over thousands of years globally, um, that kind of nationalistic masculinity gets invoked constantly. I mean, you look at the Iliad and like the Greeks are like, oh, the Trojans, they oil their beards and they wear colors, gross. Uh, and we did the same with the French and the French, I think did the same with us, if I remember correctly. If, if you're doing nationalism, then the other side is gay. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Anyway, speaking of the gays, <laughs> we should probably talk about uh, like LGBT activism now. Yes, we've talked a lot today about how TERFs organize. Um, we've talked about like um, how they kind of find champions, those with power and resources, engage in factional conflicts and basically grow their transphobic factions within like political parties. Um, they're doing the same thing with Labour uh, and the Tories. But I think it's important that we talk about how to fight against transphobic organizing um, and how to focus kind of queer organizing on the material reality and queer liberation, not just trans rights. Um, earlier, I think, I believe, uh, E, you mentioned, like, starting a local group. I remember when I was growing up, I, fe I always felt like, you know, trans people were few and far between, and, and the narrative that is pushed, the cultural narrative is, is very similar to the, the cultural narrative that was pushed on gay people. You're going to be alone. You're going to be lonely. There's 
not many folks, there's like not many trans people and you're going to be ostracized. Um, once I got involved with like the local queer scene, I realized that's not the fucking case. There's so many of us and we're beautiful and we're fucking powerful and we all like want to change shit. It's also as a trans person, <clears throat> any trans listeners will be familiar with this and you'll be familiar with this. Um, online is not often the best place to be. And that doesn't mean that you can't make a home online, but it does mean that, you know, offline can be pretty good for a lot of reasons. One of which is that you can organize in a friend's house or garden for the rony times uh, and not have your shit monitored by a corporation that's trying to incentivize your outrage for clicks. Yeah. I say on a podcast, which we're going to publish online, but <laughs> point stands regardless. Yeah. Like, don't get me wrong. Um, online activism can be useful in some ways. It's a good way of getting things out um, and of spreading the news of offline activism that you're doing. But at the end of the day, it's limited by the fact that the online world is so big. We talked about the doom spiral earlier. When you're looking at the whole fucking world connected by electrified wires, like that whole fucking world is huge and you are fucking infinitesimal. But when you go outside and you're like talking to your neighbors, they know you. The like you you can change things in your local community. You could call up your local fucking MP. You can have everyone call up your local MP. You can, you can um, talk to someone in your workplace and say, hmm, you know, maybe it would be nice if things were, you know, better. You can go shopping for people who can't go out because they got the fucking Rona. Um, like, all this stuff has a material fucking impact. And if you are at home and you feel powerless and you're fantasizing about a world where you can do something about things, you're fantasizing about just fucking murdering Jeff Bezos or whatever, like... In Minecraft. In Minecraft. That shit is, like, so painful and so unhealthy. Um, So... Start up a local group. If there's not one already, um, put out a call in the local newspaper or, like, or, like, even just talk to your trans friends and see if they've got any trans friends who'd like to hang out. Um, don't start an online group with a fancy, with a fancy like acronym because like, that's just another NGO waiting to happen. Um, talk to people and then get in touch with other local campaigns and form a network, right? Like we've got fucking Action for Trans Health. We've got Sisters Uncut. We've got the IWW. We've got AFET, all these folks like, pushing in the same direction and doing their own one thing, um, whether that's like delivering fucking groceries or whether that's fucking being proactive. And like, what you'll find is you'll start to win victories, you know? Um, if your workplace organizes, that's a victory. And what you fucking do, you scream about that until the fucking heavens come down because not enough people, uh, like, not enough victories are heard. So we need to fucking get those victories out to the local community and, you know, the greater public. But, like, at the end of the day, a movement isn't, shouldn't be run like the, like the, the trans folks want by getting a couple of 
campaigners on their side and using their platform. Like, we shouldn't be going for a JK Rowling. We shouldn't be going for a Joanne Sherry. We, because we have fucking, we have fucking like the power of the fucking working class on our sides. Um, well, one thing to note that's really interesting is the TERFs actually did like a whole um, kind of hit piece on trans people. And one of the main things that they found frustrating about us, i.e. the good things, is that like, because we do often happen to be like poor and isolated, we're very hard to pin to figureheads because we organized, we organized in a decentralized fashion, which the TERFs hate, which to me is uh, an indication that we should be doing more of it. Um, there's, there's a saying that we say in, in the IWW. Uh, bus proof, which is a bit morbid. It's the idea that if one person gets hit by a bus, your organizing campaign should be shut. Um, we have to organize non-hierarchically and rhizomatically. Yeah, 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 exactly. And like, and like, just these little like bits are all pushing together, you know, to just to, to form a fucking movement because the whole fucking world trying to take that all and gets you caught in a doom spiral and then you end up like fucking glimmer because that's what happened to him and that's why he's fucking like that he is faced with an enemy that he cannot possibly defeat but when you're going against that as a movement when it's an us not just a me like that shit's powerful one thing is an english person which which may be overly romantic and, and feel free to you know um put puncture that bubble for me that i actually think of quite a lot is the story of i think it was in glasgow where a local council really wanted to actually integrate refugees into the community and they did it too well because a few years later when um uh, people tried to evict them their neighbors who they had made mate made friends with stopped the eviction um and i think like yeah that was a, that was a thing mm. in glasgow yeah the, like the, the the immigration services stopped sending people to glasgow after that and i think that shows how powerful it was both in terms of uh something which um damages or irritates the state and also in terms of how much of an impact a very small amount of people can have because that was local community stuff yeah and and again that just came from people mingling socially and getting to know and like each other one thing that one thing that is very powerful and that is overlooked is when a movement is acting in solidarity, we see everyone has their, everyone is a person and everyone has their fucking skills. Um, like you've got someone who is an artist, you've got someone who is um, a union organizer, you've got someone who like, you know, is a fucking juggalo. Um, we, we, we fucking saw this with some of the anti-fascist process, uh, protests whoop, um, whoop. in the US, fucking whoop whoop. But like, everyone has their own unique lived experience and solidarity is pointing that together towards a fucking goal. I always think of that one scene in Sorry to Bother You when they have the football, the football blokes, like charge the fucking line of cops, you know? Um, so yeah, it's okay to fucking focus on on one thing, you know. Um, right now, I'm focused mostly on union organizing. Like right now, um, uh, one of my friends, um, Josie, uh, who I owe a lot of my observations here to. Um, you can find her uh, Harry Josephine Giles on Twitter. But like, 
she is focusing on a mate, mutual aid trans Edinburgh, who basically just go around giving aid to the working class community and then like mobilizing them to show up to protests, to show up to pickets, to all campaign to uh, uh, like to shout at a local MP until she stops doing some bullshit. Which is an example of when online kind of stuff is really worth doing at that at that kind of local level. It is worth shouting at people at that level. It's not worth shouting at fucking Boris Johnson or or, or Joe Biden, but it is worth shouting at your local MP because they are supposed to listen to you. Yeah. There is so much goddamn power to a group of people in one place trying to do something and acting in a unified way without a set leader um, towards that goal. And I think that that's something that we can take out of this because, you know, TERFs are fucking hierarchical and, and transphobes are fucking hierarchical. It came out of this reactionary movement that is based around this, this very neoliberal, this very conservative um, mindset, you know? Well, it's petty bouge concerns, petty bouge tactics. Yes, yes. Um, and th- like that, that's why they fucking love the Guardian columns so much. Overall, that's what we need to be doing. That's kind of what's important in Scotland, but I feel like that this is also important, just as important down south, right? Because it's very likely that you guys will see a, a, a similar like pattern to the current situation in the SNP because they they fucking trail that shit up here, you know? I mean, I would argue that we're seeing a kind of, not exactly the same because the, the as we talk about on this podcast, the emergent char- characteristics of like transphobic bigotry are shaped by their circumstances. But I would say we're definitely seeing that a little bit with, with Labour, which in England, of course, is just fully neo-lib, full speed ahead, where on the one hand, you have LGBT Labour, kind of proposing that they're a haven for trans people. On the other hand, you have the actual leader of the Labour Party who clearly doesn't give a shit about us. And when he does, it's because a turf is whispering in his ear. And I would encourage any mm-hmm. listeners to perhaps think non-electorally in that situation. <laughs> I think another another yeah. area in which um, like Scotland is clearly like an experimental model for the ways that certain dynamics might play out is is in the example of the Green Party. Like the Green Party, I think we're going to kind of have to devote an entire episode to because it's actually just quite complicated. But it is worth noting that like what happened in the Scottish Greens was that there was an inter- a bit of an internal kickoff over over trans issues, and that eventually culminated in in high in like high ranking um, like people who are tra- who are like sympathetic to transphobic narratives basically getting the boot. And now the English Greens are really beginning to get into a proper internal scrap over yeah. trans politics. And my suspicion is that our side will actually win, but it's very difficult to tell. And yeah. I just feel like, I feel like Scotland is this, like in the independence referendum, it was used as a testing ground. And it's just a brilliant little way in which you can examine like the microcosms of like a modern Western states approach to the way that transphobia will take hold of political discourse. Yes, and that's why we have to be there on the ground. <laughs> I, I, I've said it a couple times, uh, I'm an organizer with the IWEW. Um, if you are interested in organizing your workplace, getting a union in there, specifically getting a radical union in there who will actually do shit rather than uh, just sit around to try and sell you insurance, get in touch with us. We're 
very active in both Scotland and England. Um, as well, I believe there's an Ireland branch as well. Yeah, if you or anyone you know has issues in your workplace and is interested in fucking doing something about that collectively, give us a shout. Also, I would suggest getting in touch with Living Rent. Um, I, I, I think there's a, an England one, but there is a Scotland one who is doing some fucking tight work right now. They're uh, a union for tenants and they're interested in organizing local communities against, against landlords. So get in touch with them and, you know, fucking form your own, form your own uh, mutual aid groups. Get in touch with other trans folks, play some fucking, play some fucking sick punk music and, 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 and like organize together. One thing I would like to note before we close out the episode is that Dom has referenced uh, Josie's article, uh, which is a long medium article and really worth the read for every single person listening to this episode and this podcast generally, because it's a great antidote for sort of trans doomer kind of energy, which I know we are all kind of susceptible to. And it's, it's totally understandable because the state hates us, but I, I really recommend reading it. And it has like a whole um, sort of mind map of things that you can do set out in a really beautiful way. And she's done some really great work putting it together. And we'll be linking it when we post this episode as well. She also does some really nice poetry. <laughs> oh, lovely. I did not know that. Uh, I, I've only seen her around on, on Twitter as like a kind of knowledgeable, knowledgeable person on this stuff, but- um, No, she's a poet by trade. That makes a lot of sense. There's a, there's a lot of cool trans poets. I'm not a poetry guy myself, but I respect There are it. a lot of trans poets. There are a lot of trans artists in general, and that is one of our biggest strengths. Thank you for coming on the show uh, and helping me explain the, the fucking horrible mess that is Scottish politics to, to E and, and to our listeners. I have a feeling that we're probably going to have to dip back into Scottish politics every so often just to just to keep an eye on what the fuck is happening in the disgusting petri dish of SNP transphobia. But for now, I think we've done a you've done a really good job of like covering all the like all of the major bases on how it works. And it's been great having you on. Thanks a bunch. Uh, yeah, thanks so much for chatting to us. It's been really informative. No worries. Um, yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. Like, like I said, uh, I really want to be a force for if not positivity at least getting fucking angry and then using it we got to channel that anger we got to be proactive and and we got to fucking do some fucking good shit in the world you know thanks for having us on and i'll i'll, I'll see you all later <laughs>